Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, let's pray, Lord, that this morning you would bring your word to us by your Holy Spirit and that you would quicken our hearts to your message. Uh, Lord, that um, you would write your word on our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, what a very interesting and coincidental uh, Bible passage we have this morning, the morning after our federal election. <laughs> um, today, um, we read about governing authorities and our response to government. Uh, and yesterday was the federal election that determines who will govern this country for the next four years. Um, so, but firstly, I want to look at the context of this chapter before we get down to the nitty-gritty of it. And you might remember a couple of weeks ago that I said as we go through the book of Romans, Paul has been laying a most important framework that has led uh, up to chapter 12. Chapters 1 to 11 speak at length of the mercy of God. They speak of the cross and how God gives us an amazing gift of grace through the death of his son. So that when we get to the beginning of chapter 12, we come to this pivotal verse that captures the essence of a series of rapid-fire instructions that will follow through the rest of the book. He says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You see, from chapter 12 through to the end is what spiritual worship looks like. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't conform to everything that's against God, but be transformed by the Holy Spirit, by the renewing of your mind then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And from this point onwards, um, I think Paul is telling us what it looks like to live in the, in the will of God. He says, don't think of yourself too highly, but use sober judgment. Love without hypocrisy. Reject evil. Hold on to what is good. Bless those who persecute you love your enemy and in today's passage honour your authority which at first glance I reckon looks a little bit out of context in, the, in, the, in its location here in, in, um, in Romans but on closer inspection we'll find that it's actually neatly sandwiched in between two little passages one starting at verse 9 which talks about letting love be genuine. And then uh, further on in chapter 13, verse 8, our debt is to love one another. I think Paul has been very deliberate here in, in just slipping this um, section on authorities in between the two sections on love. He's done a similar thing actually in, in 1 Corinthians between, in 1 Corinthians 13 on love. He's actually slipped that in between uh, deliberately in between two passages to make a point. 
Um, so Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Is this hard to believe? Is this hard tucker to swallow? Paul's saying that every government in the world today, including ours, and every government that has ever been in history, God has established. And by implication, God has sovereignly disestablished every government that has ever ceased to be. Verse 1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I find this incredibly difficult statement to get my head around, actually. It means that God has established and disestablished every single one of our nation's leader, leaders, right down to our shire councillors. He established Hitler, and he disestablished him. This has to be a difficult concept to understand that a pure, holy and good God would institute both good and bad leaders. It means that God has instituted both Trump and Biden and Putin, both Howard and Keating and now Alba. He has established both democracies and dictatorships both good and evil rulers. Okay, so first thing when I struggle in understanding something, I say, is there anywhere else in Scripture that backs this up? So let's look at Jeremiah 27, verse 6, where God says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar was a, a pagan Babylonian king that destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah 27, 6, sir. I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Not only did God establish Nebuchadnezzar's kingship, in a rather strange way, though Nebuchadnezzar is evil, he's serving God. Because he's bringing about God's purposes, even though he doesn't know it. Another example would be Pontius Pilate, the ruler who, above all other rulers, did not reward good behaviour, but punished the only perfect man that ever lived. John 19.10 says, Pilate said to Jesus, do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. So Romans 13.1 includes Pilate, who unknowingly helped bring about God's purposes. Daniel 2.21 says that God removes kings and he sets up kings. All kings. They are under his control. He puts them in office and he takes them out of office. And it applies to the good and the bad rules. Now, if this wasn't 
a difficult enough concept to grasp. Verse 2 says that because God has instituted these leaders, we must not rebel against them. If we resist them, we resist God himself and incur judgment. Because he goes on to say, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Just in case you missed it, Paul used the, ser- the word servant twice in verse 4 to describe governments. Governments are for our own good, aren't they? They make laws, they carry out justice so that we can live in peace in the community, in our society. A couple of examples of good government are, you might think, uh, for example, when John Howard became Prime Minister, he brought in gun laws in response to a mass shooting at Port Arthur. Since then, there's only been one much smaller shooting in the last 25 years. And so today, when we enter public places, we can do so without the fear of being shot. But when we do wrong in society, like the Port Arthur gunman, we're punished. And Paul attributes that punishment to the wrath of God. The word wrath uh, means extreme anger. Therefore, verse 5, one must be in subjection, that is, to the authorities, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So here we see governments not as negative or neutral, but as the good, good manifestation of God's wrath. Whether they know it or not, they carry out the wrath of God on evil. And as Christians, we obey our authorities not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for our own good conscience. This is what it looks like to live in the will of God. 1 Peter 2 verses 13 to 15 uh, is a very similar passage actually. It says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. This means that God's will is to govern the world through human civil authorities. It's God's plan. Man doesn't create government. God does. And man doesn't sustain it. God does. So let's pause here just for a second because there's got to be some objections or at least some questions. There's got to be some hard wrestling here. Feel free. Feel free to object or questions.
In Romans 12 verse 2, Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world. This fundamental command puts us, the church, on a collision course with secular society. Christians are pilgrims, not indigenous. And what I mean by this is that um, we do not, as Christians, belong to this land. We are in the world, but not of it. So the question is, how do we submit to worldly and ungodly leadership when we don't belong to it? Or should we even submit to it? Does Paul actually understand about ungodly leadership? In Paul's day, the Jews were under Roman oppression and at the time of writing this letter to the Romans, Nero was the Roman emperor. Nero, um, according to Google, was the worst of all the Roman emperors, best known for debaucheries, political murders, including that of his wife and his mother, and the persecution of Christians and, weirdly enough, a passion for music. So I think that Paul actually does understand ungodly leadership. But I can't imagine that this letter would have been well accepted by Christians at that time. These Christians were being persecuted. So the question for us then is, should we always obey ungodly leadership? Does the Bible actually allow for civil disobedience? And I believe it does. In Paul's day, the mere fact that you claimed Jesus as Lord and not Caesar could carry the death sentence. Therefore, just becoming a Christian was by definition civil disobedience. Yet Paul calls us to be obedient. Other instances in Scripture can be found in Daniel 6.6. 6. Back in Daniel's day, King Darius ordered that no one worship God for 30 days. So in response, Daniel blatantly and in full view worshipped the Lord. And for his civil disobedience, he was thrown into the den of lions. Quite willingly, I might add. But the Lord protected him by keeping the lions' mouths closed. A little earlier in Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were ordered to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And when they refused, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. The king, in his fury, ordered the furnace to be way hotter than normal to ensure their death. It was so hot that the men who threw them in there were incinerated. But under God's protection, the fire had absolutely no power over Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, that not even their hair was singed. So here we have two instances of God protecting those who had committed civil disobedience. And I take that to mean that God approved of their actions. In New Testament times, most of the disciples were actually killed for their faith. Obvious civil disobedience for claiming Jesus as their king and for spreading that message. Acts, uh, in Acts it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them. 
saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. In Scripture, it would appear that the worship and honour of God as number one and the spread of the gospel are two main reasons allowing for disobedience to the state. There's also the protection of lives, like the midwives who in Exodus 1 feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. And so... God was kind to the midwives. My summation of this is that when the state orders you to sin, you must obey God, not man. However, as a balance to these scriptures, I think we need to hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Our love for possessions, our love for convenience and our love for comfort are never reasons to disobey the state. In fact, they're actually symptoms that we love the world, not God. Paul does match, mention actually one area of submission uh, specifically uh, that was pertinent then and is probably just as pertinent to us today. Taxes. For this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to him, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honour to whom honour is owed. Well, if there's one thing we hate, it's taxes. Taxes are often squandered and used unwisely. We just hate seeing our money being frittered away through red tape and uneconomical government services. We hate taxes. But here, there is no escape clause that lets us off because of unwise or even unethical expenditure. I'm sure that in the Roman Empire, Nero did not use all of his money either ethically or wisely. Yet Paul says, the authorities are ministers of God, God's servants, so pay what is owed. When thinking through this issue, I think it requires godly wisdom and a deep gospel foundation base. We are people of the cross. Our Lord submitted to an ungodly crucifixion by a government that we would call illegitimate and unconstitutional. But he willingly suffered to save his enemies. 
When I think of my utter sinfulness and the amazing intervening grace of God, it helps me get perspective on this matter. When I realise that God's plan to save the lost was pre-planned, even before the foundation of the world, I begin to understand about his sovereignty. And as I come to trust him at his word that says he is sovereign, even over evil people, I realise that I can trust him while I'm being governed by an unholy government. The events that brought about the death of Jesus were planned by God. Acts 4.27 tells us that God anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. That is, to come against Jesus and to put him to death. What a victory this must have seemed to be for those who hated him. Finally, he's dead. And initially, what a disaster this seemed for those who loved and followed him. But later, they would come to realise, along with all the people of God, that this was a decisive and incredible victory over sin the world and the devil. It's like one of those movies that when you watch it, you think, just before the end, you think, everything's lost. And then all of a sudden, at the end, you realise it's good. In summing up, if God has that much control, that at just the right time, he can orchestrate such a magnificent gift of salvation, even through evil hands, Surely, I can trust him in obeying the laws of the land, in paying my taxes, in respecting and honouring those who God says honour is owed. I think Paul wants us to know that the danger to our soul from unjust governments is nowhere near as great as the danger to our soul from the pride that kicks against submission. No mistreatment or unjust law has ever sent anyone to hell. But pride and rebellion is what sends everyone to hell who doesn't have a saviour. So let us give thanks that we have a saviour, Jesus Christ, our Lord.